talking about backwater, hillbilly, trailer trash, moonshine drinking, toothless rednecks in today's episode. We'll talk about the creepy weird origins of mountain child brides, the city folks shouldn't be coming her slashers, and the violent thrillers of the 70s that'll make you squeal like a piggy while you're spitting on someone's grave. We welcome y'all to the country for today's episode called Hicksploitation. is a film history, a lowbrow look into the high art of cinema. Every episode is an in-depth look into a niche topic of film that is not normally discussed in play company. I'm Slate. And I'm Tom. And each week, one of us researches our respective topic, writes an episode, and then schools the other. We discuss everything from exploitation to ethnically inclusive street gangs to backwater hick rapists. If there's a film subject too taboo, we haven't found it yet. Welcome. Tom. Hey, Slate. How are you? I'm good. How are you today? Oh, I'm having a fine day. Oh, that's real nice. Well, this is going to get old real quick, I bet. Yeah, probably. Uh-huh. That's fine. Okay, so um, we have a couple of new things for the season I think we should talk about. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, like the new artwork. Slate usually does our artwork, and and by that I mean Slate always does our artwork. I was like, who's the person that does it when I okay, usually so Slate don't? Slate does our yeah. artwork. And, of course, if any of you are familiar with it, it's collage work. But he switched it up a little bit for this season where we have the title of the episode in with the collage. And it's more like a movie poster type, type of, of thing. Frame. Yeah. yeah, I like it a lot. And it's animated. And it's so, animated, yeah. yeah. I pick little pieces of it. I pull video clips into the artwork and then... I export it as an animated GIF. So it's really good. Yeah, kind of something a little bit new. And we've also been doing videos. We did our video for the first four episodes. We're about to shoot uh, our second one. For the f- second four episodes. I like the videos because it gives us an opportunity to kind of visualize. You know, podcasts are very auditory. So right. this is a good opportunity when we talk about something like parasites to show exactly what all these parasites look like. So kind of a cool tool. And speaking of visualize, you could visualize me wearing my country hat right now. I love I my head right now. I love your country. Good. Real yeah. good. Very yeah. good. Real, yeah. Really like it. Slate and I are from Virginia. Yeah, well, actually, so that's a good intro because the background on this episode is uh, not a great story, but I'll tell it anyway. All just right, like good. I always do. Sounds exciting. So I was actually born in a really country town in Virginia. Yeah. And that's where you and I met. We sure did. Yep. So you didn't grow up there, but you spent some time there after you got out of the army. I did. Um, I did grow up in Hampton, Virginia, which is south of where you're from, and that's pretty redneck as well. Yeah. I've always been really interested in kind of the differences between country people and city people. And it's a huge issue in movies, mostly because of movies that are kind of like fish out of water scenarios. Right. So something like Midnight Cowboy, which has John Voight as a Texas hustler. He <laughs> wears, you know, cowboy cowboy clothing and he tries to make a living in New York City as a cowboy hustler. Right. And then, do you remember that movie The Cowboy Way with Woody Harrelson and Kiefer Sutherland? Yeah, didn't they just ride horses throughout the New York? They did. They went to New York to solve a murder, but they were like, we're cowboys in the city. We're gonna solve this murder yeah. with my horse. And also, I was going through, right after the election, I was looking for something kind of uh, light to watch and I watched Son-in-Law starring Polly Shore. <laughs> Jesus, <laughs> remember why? That? why? <laughs> I became a obsessed with it for like three days it's this terrible movie it's so awful but you know those movies are all about like city people and country people fish right. out of water type stories i'm not really going to talk about a lot of that today because when i really went to find out you know more about exploitation when i was writing this i realized that you can have a fish out of water movie without country people right so if you look at a movie like legally blonde everyone is smart and has money and no one's from the country the reason why she's a fish out of water is because she's from sunny la and she like pink and Harvard is a very kind of dreary overcast place so that's the kind of fish out of water story that she tells um, but then she's back in Sweet Home Alabama as the opposite fish out of water. Or do you talk about that? Uh, not really. No. I mean, I mentioned uh, Sweet Home Alabama a little bit later, but yeah, I guess Reese Witherspoon. White loves women love that fish movie. Fish out of water. Yeah. I don't get it. White women really love Sweet Home Alabama. I only watched it one time. You know, it was on like TBS or something, and I watched. Terrible. It and it was just it's like, got the. This isn't good. Yeah, I feel like we should do an episode on like the groom stealing the bride on the wedding, even though it's not really lowbrow. But I mm-hmm. hate that. 
you hate that trope. Thing. Yeah. And, well, yeah. don't watch TBS because that's, that's all it is. Every movie is, yeah, is it's about fucking that. terrible. Yeah. Anyway. I just rewatched the movie Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Oh, nice. Yeah. Yeah. So she's kind of, what's her name is like a fish out of water because half of the movie is her like falling off the elephant. Yeah, and then Capshaw. she's like, I yeah. can't eat eyeball soup. I'm from the city. You know, even though she's not in the country, she's from a different country. It's still kind of a fish out of water right. story. And speaking of fish out of water, Ariel from The Little Mermaid, she's a fish Aww. out of water. She has to learn how to do things in a, in a different way and it gets wacky misadventures it's while she's above her. Right. So I just want to make sure that everyone kind of understands there's a difference between hicksploitation and fish out of water stories. Great, yeah. I'm going to define hicksploitation as a movie where country people are stereotyped into backwoods, working class or unemployed, non-educated monsters, basically. <laughs> yeah, Not necessarily much, yeah. literal monsters, although there are a few uh, in this episode. But basically people that because they live in the country are likely to commit crimes like underage marrying, bootlegging, rapes, and of bootlegging. course murder, bootlegging. I'll sprinkle in some lighthearted exploitation along the way just to keep the mood you know light that, that wasn't lighthearted because I, I, I well it was funny because I was like bootlegging and then I was like rape and murder was, rape and murder sorry Woo-hoo! don't say that yeah. with an accent That's not yeah good. exactly yeah, so, yeah we shouldn't yeah. do that the first movie to ever deal with the direct exploitation of country folk was the movie Child Bride from 1943 <laughs> Child Bride was actually commissioned by the United States government to potentially educate people specifically mountain folk about not marrying underage girls this all makes sense because Child Bride, if you've ever seen it, I'll put it on the website, but it never in a million years would have been passed by the production code. Wait, 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 wait. This is a PSA to tell people to, hey, please don't marry children. Yes, basically. <laughs> I mean, it was, it's a feature length film. You know, it's like an hour long or whatever, but it kind of starts off. You can still marry your cousin, though, right? That's good. That's fine, right? Well, sure, that's fine. Oh, yeah, good. Totally. Thank you. So remember that back then, like, it wasn't uncommon, especially in the country, for an older man to marry a much younger girl that still lived with her parents. Right. Many poor women just moved from having their parents, you know, take care of them or living with their parents to living with a with another man. Right. Child Bride went for the goods, though, and the <laughs> subject was 12-year-old Shirley Mills. Wow. So Child Bride opens with the warning, here is a page from the Book of Life in Thunderhead Mountain. We do not aim to ridicule the back yonder folk, but if our story abolishes their child marriages, then it will have served its purpose. So that's kind of, it opens up with that title. The rough plot, a teacher in the Ozark tries to get men to stop marrying underage girls and is successful in getting a ban passed. But one man, after seeing Shirley Mills swimming naked, blackmails her battered mother and after giving Shirley a doll, marries her. This girl is 12 years old. Terrible. He's then gunned down by a dwarf right before he can consummate his marriage. This is true. This is all true. All right, listen, I, I don't know if you mean to do this, but you're really selling the shit out of this movie. Okay, well, it's a terrible movie. Right. But it's got a place in history because of that nude swimming scene. Shirley Mills was actually nude, and you can see her 12-year-old boobs and butt in the movie. Like, I watched it on YouTube. You can see it. Wow. I'll beat you undressed, Jenny. Ready? You ain't going swimming with me no more, so don't you take your clothes off. Ah, you're teasing. No, I'm not. I mean it. We've always gone in swimming together. Why not now? Teacher says not to. Well, you can't see me without my clothes on. Oh, shucks. Now I can't kiss you no more. Of course you can, silly. Only with my clothes on. A lot of states banned it back in the day, and a lot of DVDs censor the scene now. What's really funny about Child Bride is that it sets a pretty good standard for, like, exploitation movies in the future. Yeah. It starts off with a warning. This film is to warn people what not to do, but then, of course, glamorizes all of these exactly things. Exactly. Yeah. You know, so it's, it's a great template, you know, especially early on in 1943. Yeah, holy shit. Fun fact, Child Bride is the only film ever rejected by Mystery Science Theater. Really? Yeah. They said it just made us feel dirty and sad. Well, yeah, that says something. Child Bride, I put it if on the website. If you're a fan of Mystery Science Theater, you'll yeah. know that they'll watch anything. Yeah. Except Child Bride. This was too bad. There's a pretty big gap in exploitation movies in general until the late 50s and early 60s when the production code started to fall apart. Right. But then came a TV show that got America excited about making fun of country people. Any guesses? Hee haw. <laughs> Hee haw, I think it was a little bit later. This is the Beverly Hillbillies. Oh, that's right. Beverly yeah. Hillbillies. The Beverly Hillbillies first debuted in 1962 and was a huge hit. Mm-hmm. It actually started an entire genre of TV show, which was the fish out of water TV shows, yeah. where someone from a certain class was placed in a different class, and of course, hilarity ensues. Yeah. I guess the show Green Acres is like the reverse of that, yeah. right? Because it puts city people in the country. country yeah. Yeah. All right. 
Suddenly, everyone wanted a piece of this new format, and one of the first to rip it off was none other than Ed Wood. He wrote a screenplay called Shotgun Wedding in 1963. Tagline, she wanted a quiet wedding, so her paw put a silencer on his shotgun. (laughs) He probably should have worked on that a little bit more. (laughs) I kind of thought it was great. (laughs) There was also a movie called Common Law Wife from 1963, which involves an old man who wants to trade in his old wife and instead marry his hot young stripper niece. Timely topic, yeah. But the real template for exploitation horror movies was the Herschel Gordon-Lewis, Dave Friedman sort of classic 2000 Maniacs from 1964. Mm -hmm. Have you seen this? A long time ago. 2000 Maniacs was the follow-up to the crazy popular first-ever gore film Blood Feast and had a significantly larger budget, and it actually shows. Rough plot, six northerners get detoured into a small southern town on the 100th anniversary of when the town was attacked and destroyed by the North in the Civil War. The crazy bloodthirsty townspeople murder them in some pretty creative ways as retribution. One man gets murdered when each of his four limbs are tied to four horses. Do you remember this? Oh, yeah. Drawn and quartered, yeah. Yeah. Good times. When the horses are all called, they rip his body apart in sections. Kind of pretty cool, actually. Yeah, it's not, not bad. Yeah. You're all invited to a centennial celebration. What they were celebrating wasn't important, and it sounded like a heap of fun until 2,000 maniacs crazed for carnage started bathing an entire town in pulsing human blood. You'll see six young strangers doomed to slaughter by an ancient curse. Brutal, evil, ghastly beyond belief. You'll see the most diabolical device ever contrived, designed solely for assassination by a town of madmen, insane with blood lust. Oh, the South's gonna rise again. It turns out that they're all spirits of dead Civil War Southerners that only appear once every hundred years to, like, fuck shit up in the name of the South. It's actually a pretty popular drive-in staple back in the day, and that was mostly due to Southern audiences loving it. Yeah. Side note, Natalie Merchant's band, 10,000 Maniacs, got their name from this movie. From that movie, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. Herschel Gordon-Lewis followed this up with another but different exploitation movie called Moonshine Mountain in 1964. Moonshine Mountain. I should Mountain. say Moonshine Mountain. Yep, been Moonshine there. Moonshine Mountain was a musical slash comedy that was marketed towards the South. It's hard to find a copy, but a lot of online reviews talk about being kids when they like used to sneak into B theaters you mm-hmm. know, to see it. It sounds dreadful, but was one of those examples of exploitation movies that actually catered to the South. And it was filmed in the Carolinas. <laughs> It's like, is that a thing? <laughs> is that, I think there's I, only two, and you just either either in one or, or the other. Or the other, yeah. yeah. Maybe they were on the border. But again, it catered to the South, as opposed to being you know, a movie that made fun of people in the South and catering that to the North. You know what I mean? Yeah, a yeah, yeah, yeah. A few more interesting movies from the 60s were Mud Honey from 1965, which was what that band from the 90s was named after. Yeah. Mud Honey was actually a Russ Meyer movie, so we will talk about it a little bit in an upcoming episode. Nice. But he also made a follow-up to that, which was Common Law Cabin in 1967. Is that like a sequel to Common Law Marriage? It's not, actually. Oh, no. okay. There was a movie called Shanty Trap. Shanty. <laughs> I love the word shanty. 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 It's you have to say shanty. It's shanty. Shanty Trap. Tramp. It's Shanty Tramp. That's even better. That's the name of my band. Shanty Tramp. Shanty Tramp's playing tonight in New York City. <laughs> shanty Trap from 1967 is about a slutty woman. I'm not calling her a slut. The movie calls her a slut. Who shows up in a small town and all the guys go literally crazy over her. It's got this like weird race subplot as well. Hmm. And then there's the movie Country Cousins. Cousins is spelled C-U-Z-Z-I-N-S. Is that a that's porn, right? It was a softcore country sex romp with wow. full male sex. and female nudity for the driving crowd. Sex romp. Mm-hmm. I mention all of these lighthearted sex movies because three heavy pieces of exploitation were just about to hit. The first was Straw Dogs from 1971. Oh yeah. Straw Dogs was a Sam Peckinpah film made in the UK based on the novel called The Siege of Trencher's Farm. It starred Dustin Hoffman as a scientist that moved back to the country hometown of his hot wife, played by Susan George. Mm -hmm. Dustin Hoffman's character is, of course, small-framed, intelligent, and very city. And specifically, his wife's high school boyfriend are large, blue-collar, and I'm not going to say that they're simple people, but their worlds are small. Dustin Hoffman hires some of them to help fix up the garage, and that's when all their worlds start to kind of, like, crash into each other. Mm -hmm. So there's a centerpiece rape scene in the movie where Susan George's ex-boyfriend comes into the house to have sex with her. The scene is definitely implying rape, but she seems to be kind of okay with it, too. This is the biggest, what they call, problematic scene Ugh, in the movie. So problematic. We're going to actually talk about it a lot today. Oh, good. It's yes. super complicated, but also, as a character study, kind of interesting. 
All the while in the first half of the movie, she's kind of flirting, but then not flirting with her old boyfriend and his friends. Right. So then when it appears like she's about to have sex with them, and it's, it's her old boyfriend, we're kind of okay with it. But then his friend comes in and it turns into a pretty brutal rape scene that had to be cut to get an R rating. Yeah. She keeps it a secret from Dustin Hoffman, but obviously can't forget it. And then everything goes to shit and there's kind of a huge shootout style finale. Yeah, it's, it's like a home invasion type of finale. Yeah, it's a great movie. It's a great movie, and it's a troubling one, but it's an interesting one. You could do a thesis on masculinity with this movie. Yeah. Because it's the overarching theme is that masculinity is based on violence and protecting what's yours, and which is actually what draws him out. You know, he's an, he's like a kind of a wuss. <laughs> You're like, he's kind of a wuss. Wuss. All the townsfolk and her, you know, the Susan George's ex-boyfriend, you know, they're all very domineering, very like... Yeah, and blue collar and working with your hands. And, yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, they're constantly pushing him around. And it wasn't until they took what was his, which was his woman, that yeah. he acted out and is like being an alpha male. And he basically, yeah, kills them all for the most part. Right. It's such a peck and Paul type of masculinity film. Yeah. And it's the best way I can describe it. But uh, uh, Absolutely. But it is a great movie. Yeah. So Straw Dogs was obviously very controversial when it came out. Oh, yeah, no shit. You know, for a few reasons, namely the rape scene, because it was just so complicated. And mm-hmm. like you said, the themes of manhood, you know, city versus country was certainly not a new idea, but it also didn't really paint country people in that great of a light. Not at all. They were rapists and murderers. Also remember that the film world in 1971 was getting a lot of shit for obviously a spike in violence, but also a spike in violence that was said to promote real life violence. Yeah. Just that year, in addition to Straw Dogs, saw the release of A Clockwork Orange, The French Connection, and Dirty Harry, all big hits, but with very violent, sometimes rapey content. So, makes sense. Yeah, rise in sexual violence in a lot of these. Well, I'm glad you mentioned that, because the movie Straw Dogs paved the way for the second huge Hicksploitation movies of the 70s. Oh, God, yeah. Probably the mothership of Hicksploitation movies. Yeah. Deliverance in 1972. Wow. These are the men. Nothing very unusual about them. Suburban guys like you or your neighbor. Nothing very unusual about them until they decided to spend one weekend canoeing down the Kahulawasi River. We're going to talk about it, but I'm going to give you a quick breakdown. Okay. Quick plot breakdown. Four city men, including Burt Reynolds and John Voigt, go down to a remote river in Georgia to canoe down it before it's flooded by a dam. It's a pretty standard man versus wilderness story until they become separated and two extremely rural, toothless hunters find them and rape Ned Beatty's character. Burt Reynolds shoots one of them, but the other one gets away, and the rest of the movie centers around trying to kill him before he can kill the others. I'm not going to belabor Deliverance because it's well-covered territory, but let's chat about it for a second. Okay. Deliverance is still a shocking movie to, yep. to this day. Seeing these movies, I can only imagine what people thought of it when it came out in the 70s. I want to point out something. Maybe you talk about this. This is another theme of masculinity, but it switches it up, too, mm-hmm. because Burt Reynolds was like the alpha male of that group. Right. But he, spoiler, he gets injured mm-hmm. and kind of becomes a, a, a whiny little bitch after he gets, I mean, he's got like a fucking fracture, yeah. bone poking out, so he's kind of fucked up. And so some of the lesser guys are the ones that have to take out the rednecks that are after him. And so they have to sort of step up into that role. So it sort of switches that. And then, Absolutely. of course, the other thing about with the rape, about taking somebody's masculinity which is what that scene, I think, was about. And Ned Beatty, you know, took a lot of bravery to be in that took one for the team. I mean, literally, but yeah. I mean, even when I watch it now, I've seen it a million times. It's such a great movie. It is a great movie. beautifully shot. As an actor, I doubt I would have done that role. Yeah, it took a lot for him to do that role, I think. 70s, too. 70s. Also, it's a very tense, thrilling movie. Even after they get out of the woods, there's still the whole, with the cops and everything else. It's really like you were like, oh, shit. So up until the end, this movie is is a tense thriller. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's really worth seeing. But it is disturbing. It's 70s as fuck. And there's some harsh violence and sexual violence in this movie. Yeah, absolutely. Ooh, and of course, the banjo kid, which has often been made fun of. I'm going to talk about him. Okay, go for it. So one of the reasons why Deliverance is such a classic movie is because it has numerous classic scenes, starting with the opening where Ronnie Cox's character is playing banjo duet with a seemingly inbred child. Yeah. The song Dueling Banjos was actually re-released to radio stations and made it to number two on the Hot 100 charts in 1975. Did you know that? No, I did not. 1972, excuse me. Yeah. Do you remember the song? 
It's some good playing. We should learn how to play that. Yeah, we should. You, the two of us. Yeah. It's perfect for us. Dealing banjos. Yeah. I'll be the inbred kid. Okay. Obviously, the humiliating rape scene coined two very famous movie quotes. Remember them both? Yeah, I'm going to let you say them. Squeal like a piggy. Yeah. Come on, boy. Squeal like a piggy. And he's got a pretty mouth. Oh, yeah. You got a pretty mouth. Got a pretty mouth. Yeah, that's horrifying. And obviously the end scene where the hand comes out of the water in a dream sequence has it's been duplicated bloated. so many times. Yeah, yeah. Carrie, dressed to kill, Excalibur. Oh yeah, Excalibur. Yeah. I forgot about that, yeah. In my opinion, the reason Deliverance works so well is because it's so multi-layered, as you mentioned. Yeah. It's not just a city people go to the country and they should have just died in the city type of story. They're there to experience one of the few untouched pieces of land before big industry basically swallows it whole. Yeah. There's an interesting line in the first scene where they're all explaining to the Hick townspeople what they're doing. And one of them says, you don't know nothing to Ned Beatty. It comes off as a warning about the river, but that's kind of the point. Country people don't get the city and city folk don't get the country. No. They talk about raping the land, but they're the ones coming in from the city to get a quick piece of it before it happens. Yeah. And then raping the city folks is the way to get back at them. I mean, it's it's complicated. Right. Yeah. All right. Too highbrow for today's episode. That's great. Great movie. A whole bunch of Deliverance-style films would come out to capitalize slash exploit the success, starting with Walking Tall from 1973, which was about a Tennessee man standing up for his town, and Mama's Dirty Girls from 1974. There's a movie called Hot Summer in Barefoot County from 1974, which sometimes played on a double bill with Trucker's Woman from 1975. Porn movies also caught on to this and used exploitation themes in The Pig Keeper's Daughter from 1972. (laughs) That sounds bad. Tobacco Rudy. Tobacco Rudy? R-O-O-D-Y. Rudy? Would you know what that means? I know. Me neither. Tobacco Rudy. We know most of the Southern things. I don't know what a Rudy is. Uh, My personal favorite... Midnight Plowboy from 1973. <laughs> oh, goodness. Midnight Plowboy. Midnight Plowboy. Now this joke's never going to go away. Yeah. We're going to mm-hmm. use references a lot now. But the biggest winner in the spinoffs and ripoffs of Deliverance was one of its stars, Burt Reynolds. Mm-hmm. Deliverance made Burt Reynolds a bona fide star and a huge sex symbol at the same time. Oh, yeah. Right after he made Deliverance, he posed nude on a bearskin rug for Cosmopolitan, and it was a huge deal back then. Mm-hmm. He even claims it cost him an Oscar nomination. Oh, really? He immediately followed up Deliverance with some pretty bad and some pretty decent movies, one being White Lightning from 1973. Oh, yeah. Burt Reynolds played Gator a man in jail for moonshining. He said it was, quote, the beginning of a whole series of films that made in the South, about the South and for the South. Mm-hmm. No one cared if the picture was even distributed north of the Mason-Dixon line because you could make back the cost of the negative just in Memphis alone. I am. Anything outside that was just gravy. So he's very forward about the fact that he made a lot of country movies. I like Gator. Well, he followed that up with the movie called Gator from 1976, which was the sequel that he directed himself. Mm-hmm. It has a 0% on Rotten Tomatoes. So I'll just leave that. Yeah, a lot of stunts, though. Mm -hmm. He made WW and the Dixie Dance Kings in 1975 and then took a little bit of a turn when he played the Bandit and Smokey and the Bandit from 1977. Smokey and the Bandit. Have you seen Smokey and the Bandit? I loved this movie as a kid because it came on Movie Channel all the time. And and come on, he had a Trans Am Mm -hmm. and had Jerry Reed, who sung the theme song and had his dog, um, Fred. In uh-huh. a truck with him, and if I'm stealing your thunder, I don't care. No, steal my, you uh, so have my thunder. The plot's interesting, and it's a plot they couldn't use today because they have made a bet with a rich guy and his son, who the son is played by Paul Williams. He's a short guy, and he played the son of this rich guy. And they bet Bandit if you could get them uh, this beer. It was like Coors. It was but Coors. It, but that's it was right. illegal in Georgia. So they had to go to Texas and get it. And they had like a certain like 24 hours or 48 hours or something like that to do it. And they bet him a lot of money. And so Burt Reynolds got in a Trans Am and they hauled ass down there. And he met Sally Field who was getting married to a cop. And then Jackie Gleason was the profane sheriff that was following him. And uh, Buford Saying, T. Some Justice. bitch. Some bitch. Some bitch. So the reason that Burt Reynolds was in the Trans Am, because he wasn't driving the rig, was to distract the police from the rig. The county mounties. Right, yeah. Yeah. So if he drove, if, you know, did all these wacky wild stunts and everything, then they would be focused on trying to catch him, and then the rig could get through with all the cores that everybody wanted. I don't know why. Why wasn't it liquor? Why was it cores? I don't know, because that's country as fuck. I don't know. But uh, yeah, this movie's also like car exploitation, because everybody wanted a Trans Am after this movie came out yeah i love this movie because it had some stunts and he jumped over shit 
and cop cars wrecked, like which was a big thing in the 70s and early 80s where a bunch of cop cars would always just wreck The funny movies. part about it was is I had never, I mean, I barely even heard of it. You know, this is just not a type of movie that I watched like as a kid, you know. I had to order it from Netflix DVD. They had to send it from a whole different warehouse. Wow. So I don't know. It took a while for it to get to me. And when I was watching it, I was kind of like, no, nah, it's kind of boring. I don't really care. Then I got really into it by yeah. the end. But the funny thing was just like the whole movie is about like the Trans Am would do something something and then the cop car wouldn't do the thing right so it was like and it was all it was just constantly cop cars falling into bodies of water right the trans am always made it and then the cop would be like womp, womp, cop car fell yeah, in the that water was a big throughout the 70s that whole thing happened where somebody would make it and then like the person chasing them would not right it was like dukes of hazard style thing Which, yeah. yeah and i think fun fact you may have this but i think wasn't that the second highest grossing movie of 77 behind star, star wars Wars. so on a budget of 4.3 million dollars it mm-hmm. made 300 million worldwide holy shit that's 77 dollars what'd you say 1977 19 yeah that's 1977 dollars that's yeah, that's we like, see a lot of surprising things in film. That's very surprising to me. Yeah, that is that movie blew up. Yeah, I got to tell you this because I've never I've never told anybody this story. So I love this movie so much that when I was in I don't know maybe second grade or something when I saw this movie, I ended up making a play version of it and I made props like with the car and we actually I put on a Smokey and the Bandit play in my second grade class. You are lying. I am not lying. You're to a you. playwright. You're a Smokey and the Bandit playwright. I wrote. I wish I still had that. I mean, I, I obviously had to edit out all the cussing. But yeah, we put on a Smoking the Bandit play. Did like somebody play Sally Field? I feel like that's the yes, role we had I would a have Sally played. Field. I'm trying to remember who was Bandit. Maybe I was Bandit. You I'm, better have been Bandit. If you're the playwright, then you should have been Bandit. Well, I was a director too, so you oh, know. That's, but that's, it's hard to direct and act, you know. Right. Same time. Yeah, I put on a Smoking the Bandit play, and my my teacher let me do it. That's amazing. I think I need to dust it off and send this shit to Broadway. You know, maybe you and I should reenact the Smoking <laughs> and the Bandit play. <laughs> I think we should. We'll have let's, to print it out and do let's that. Let's not do that. Okay. One of the things that I thought was great about the film brought back a lot of memories was their main form of communication was via CB radio. Yeah, that was a big deal. CB. So that was also my grandfather's number one mode of communication back in the day. And it was just so funny listening to all their CB communication. Do you know the lingo? I knew a little bit of it. When we used to like take family vacations, we drove in two cars and that's the way that we would talk back and forth between, you know, grandparents and yeah. I had a handle. I got to see if I can remember. It was, oh, it was Cool Whip, I think it was. I think mine <laughs> was awesome. Cool Whip. It's really gay. That's gay. Even, uh, uh, cool Whip, come back over. <laughs> and I'd be like, hi. <laughs> like, I'm playing my Madonna and Cindy Lauper cassette tapes over here in the car with mom and dad. <laughs> Jeez. They're <laughs> like, who the hell am I talking to? Yeah. We had a walkie-talkie that mm-hmm. occasionally you can get on a CB channel if somebody's close enough. And so occasionally we talk to truckers, sometimes piss them off. Mm-hmm. Truckers get mad easy. Yeah, I bet. Yeah, they're like, if you're a dumb kid being an asshole on that channel. Yeah, they're like... They, they want to come kick your ass. That's basically like to them, it's like you stole their cell phone but and really, are like changing all the settings on well, it. Yeah, considering the CB's only purpose mm-hmm. was to, to look out for cops. Like right. that's the only reason it existed. Yeah. Like trafficking cops, mostly cops. Of course, there were sequels to the movie Smokey and the Bandit yes. with Burt Reynolds. There was Smokey and the Bandit 2 from 1980 and Smokey and the Bandit 3, where Burt Reynolds only has a cameo. Burt Reynolds was also in the country musical movie The Best Little Whorehouse in Texas. Oh, I remember that, yeah. From 1982, that was with Dolly Parton. I say this just because I remember it from a Trivial Pursuit card, but do you know what Dolly Parton's CB handle was? No, what? Booby Trap. Wow. Booby Trap was I know, her I, CB I got hand- it, yeah. Oh, yeah, okay, great. Cool Whip and Booby Trap, the movie. <laughs> Okay, moving on from Burt Reynolds. Yep. It wasn't until the mid-70s when Hicksploitation would see its first technical horror slasher film, and that was, of course, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre from 1974. Oh, yeah. We talked about the gore factor of The Texas Chainsaw Massacre in our first episode on cannibalism, so I'm going to focus a little bit more on the country city part of the story, since for a horror film, it's pretty well-crafted. Yeah, agreed. The Texas Chainsaw Massacre was a really unique film because of the weird place that horror movies were in at the time. The drive-in gore movies of the mid-60s were pretty out of style by 1974, namely because The Exorcist came out the year before and proved that a pretty shocking and sacrilegious movie could make huge money at the box office. Mm -hmm. And so Hollywood was headed into bigger production horror movies like The Omen and Carrie. The Texas Chainsaw Massacre kind of came out of nowhere, was shot on a shoestring budget, kind of looked like a snuff movie, and was supposedly based on the true story of Ed Gain. 
Texas Chainsaw Massacre centers around a van full of teenagers that comes to Texas to see if a recent string of grave robberies has affected the graves of their ancestors. They pick up a crazy bumpkin with Polaroids of dead animals who ends up cutting one of them. One by one, they're picked off by a family of slaughter industry workers that are unemployed since the slaughter factories have all closed and must resort to cannibalism and human slaughter to maintain the family way. Still pretty great, shocking, wonderful movie. I agree. So yep. It's a wonderful movie. It's still raw and it's so cheap that it feels more real. There's no buildup of suspense when violence happens very suddenly, yeah, very just quick, happens. and very shocking. Yeah, I went to Texas not too long ago. That's a unique place, huh? Texas? It's different. Yeah. I, I'm, yeah, I've been through Texas. I definitely thought about the movie The Texas Chainsaw Massacre a lot when I was there, namely because you drive for very, very long stretches and don't really see anything. Right. And that kind of makes it a little bit more like, oh, you know, I wonder if anybody over there in that house that's like 30 miles away, but I can see it because it's so flat, is going to kill me. And especially once you get to the yeah the western part of Texas, it feel like you can fall into your own horror movie very easily. Yeah, all you need to do is have your car break down, and then it's horror movie time. Right, because there is a bunch of nothing out in West Texas. And I remember I had to drive out to Arizona, and I drove through at night. And that's another thing. There's there's no lights out there. Right, right. And here I am set up for a perfect horror movie. I'm in my yep. car. That's a shitty car, and I'm on E mm-hmm. for a town. I found one, but I mean, it was there was nothing. I was pitch dark. Right. And I was as freaky as fuck. So when you yeah. got to the gas pump in the town, did the pump guy say, you got a party mouth? He's like, we don't like strangers around here. It was all children in this town. I don't know what, what happened to the adults. <laughs> <laughs> So it's weird, yeah. All right. The runaway success of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre would give some new indie life to the exploitation genre after Deliverance and Straw Dogs really took it into the mainstream. Yeah. The House by the Lake, a.k.a. Death Weekend from 1976, was a Canadian horror film where a couple is tortured by a gang of country punks after they get into an altercation. Mm. The Creeper from 1977 was also a Canadian movie where a group of doctors go camping and someone doesn't want them there. Wow. And of course, The Hills Have Eyes from 1977 was also in our episode on cannibalism. I'll keep moving, but it was about a family vacation to California that went wrong after getting stranded in the desert and being hunted by an inbred cannibal family. Mutants too, right? When there's nuclear testing out there too, so they're mutated. That's right. Did you talk about this in Toxic Waste? You know what? I really didn't talk about this one in Toxic Waste, but you talked about it in cannibalism. But yeah, they're also mutated, so. Mutants. There's mutants out there. there. I I heard there's some mutants out there. Yeah, I seen them. Seen them too. Roger Corman continued to make exploitation drive-in movies for southern state audiences like Nashville Girl from 1976 and Moonshine County Express from 1977. Yeah. Toby Hooper followed up Texas Chainsaw Massacre with Eight and Alive from 1977 about a backwoods bar where the owner feeds people to his crocodiles in a pit out back. Mm. And Whiskey Mountain from 1977 <laughs> where two couples go into the mountains to find buried treasure but find danger instead. That's quotes. That's quote, yeah. I'm just buttering your biscuits for what I'm going to talk about next. Mighty fine. I spit on your grave. Yeah. <laughs> it's not only one of the most controversial films ever made, it's also a exploitation movie. It is. It I'm is. guessing we're going to be talking about this movie a lot in this season. Yes, I come back to this movie mm-hmm. in a future episode. All right, you want to chat about it for a second? I'm going to tell you a story about this movie. <laughs> you got a lot of stories today. Yeah. We're really is... going back to your past in Hampton, Virginia. So as a kid... You know, once I started getting into horror movies, I just had to watch everything. And I had a group of friends, and we just watched, you know, Chopping Mall or whatever. Just uh, any fucking movie we could find, sure, we'd sure. watch it. Well, we've always seen I Spin on Your Grave in the video store. And yep. we're like, hey, let's, let's watch it. It's got a butt on the And it says cover. not rated on it. So we're right. like, hey, this might be something. Mm-hmm. So we get it. And, you know, like, my friend's parents didn't really give a shit about what movies we watched. His mom just happened to walk in during that rape scene. Mm. and it's, Which it, one? It's, for, it's an hour of rape. It's yeah. the beginning of the main one yeah yeah and she was like no Mm -hmm. no no you're not watching this she was right she was correct yeah that wasn't that movie's not a horror movie like if you were watching like chopping mall and like that's not a horror movie no it's not it's it's fucked up yeah and so yeah then she called the video store so i couldn't rent r-rated movies for a while no she got you banned from the video store yeah that was like growing up in the 80s that was like the worst thing that could happen to you yeah i mean it was was a short time you know once it blew over we can get them again but yeah i hadn't seen i spit on your grave for years until years years later because of that yeah i spit on your grave This woman will soon cut, chop, break, and burn five men beyond recognition. And there isn't a jury in this country that will convict her. 
So the plot of Ice Spit on Your Grave is basically a New York City woman goes to a small lake town to write her first novel in peace. And four townspeople rape her one by one and have one of them kill her. But he gets cold feet. After some recovery time, she lures them one by one, pretending she liked it, and then kills them all. I thought when I was in high school and never saw it again until I just watched it for this. Right. It's pretty upsetting still, I think, in yeah. a way that, you know, movies like Last House on the Left and Cannibal Holocaust are so low budget and real looking that you feel like you're watching a snuff movie, you know? Yeah. But as an exploitation, it's actually pretty great. I'm really desensitized to movies at this point. Yeah, and me so too, I'm for definitely the most part. desensitized towards this movie. But all right, well, here's a couple things you might not know about I Spit on Your Grave. All right. The director. Director Mir Zarki, Zarki, Mayor Zarki, Mirzarki, Mirzarki, got the idea when he came across a woman that had been raped in a park that he helped to safety. So this actually happened. Damn. He wrote the movie, cast Camille Keaton in the lead role, and shot it in Connecticut. He couldn't get distribution for it; like nobody wanted this movie. So he sent it to the MPAA to get it rated, and ended up cutting it four times to get an R rating. He ended up releasing it himself in some drive-ins in the South under the name Day of the Woman. Yeah. It was a total bomb. So he pulled the film, he put all the X-rated scenes back into the movie, and then sold it to Cinemagic Productions. They changed the name and released it two years later in 1981. It made a fortune, not just in theaters and drive-ins, but mainly on home video. You rented it, so. Mm -hmm. Yeah, look where that uh, led. Here, and then it was really big in the UK as well. Yeah. I guess this is just one of those movies, Brian. Also, if you look at the cover of it, the video, you know, the VHS it's pure exploitation. Cover, it shows yeah, it's her in torn clothing with her butt. And she's like holding a knife or something, right? Yeah. She's got a bloody, muddy butt. Yeah, it's a pinnacle of exploitation covers. It's really like... Yeah, you're just like, I want to see that movie. And also, they that was the funny thing, is that I remember it being in the horror section of movies. Yeah. It doesn't belong there. It's not a horror movie. No. But they just, they, they figured out the exact market to like shove that in. Yeah. And everyone has seen that movie. Yeah. You know? Most people that like horror movies. Yeah, sure. Have seen that movie. Like, you know, my grandma hadn't seen it. Well, Christmas is coming. <laughs> yeah, it's true. That's true. Uh, yeah. I, I think it's, I can still get my Amazon stuff shipped before Christmas. So yeah. I'm going to move on because I know you're going to spend a while on it in a future episode. Yeah. So that brings us up to the 80s. Oh, goody. The 80s got a reboot of country culture thanks to Coal Miner's Daughter in 1980 starring Sissy Spacek, who won Best Actress for her portrayal of country singer Loretta Lynn. Yeah. It wasn't a exploitation movie, but like the Beverly Hillbillies brought country back into the mainstream, Coal Miner's Daughter also made country cool again. Right. There was the movie Mother's Day from 1980, which was a quickie trauma film where a mother's two inbred sons are killers. There's also Motel Hell from 1980, which I I definitely saw a while back. I'm having a hard time remembering the details. Oh, yeah. So this farmer... I guess people would come and stay at the hotel and he would drug them or whatever and for some reason would bury, bury them in the them? ground. Well, he'd cut, cut out their, their vocal, vocal cords, cords so they sound. They made these fucked up noise when they tried to speak like a, sound like a toad or something. It was uh-huh. kind of freaky. He'd bury them up to their neck in, in the garden right. the bags over their head for some reason and then would cut them up put them in barbecue and they'd sell the barbecue. Yeah, he sold them as like jerky so it served it to the guests. Yeah, yep, it was some good barbecue. Well, they said in it's the... It's award-winning barbecue. <laughs> it's real good, y'all. It's real good. I think that he buried them so it was like he was like raising a farm of people I, I guess and would pull them out of the ground when they were ready it's a pretty disturbing know. like visual though yeah they yeah, probably I thought of that and then they were like let's write a movie around it that kind of makes sense but not really but not really yeah okay well one of the best deliverance ripoffs was just before dawn from 1981 have you seen this no I have not yeah so it's about a group of hikers in the Oregon mountains that get stalked by a killer mountain man nothing really new in the plot department but it actually got some pretty good reviews back in the day and has developed a cult following over the years I just watched it two nights ago because it was one of the things that I marked in here. It's really good. It's a really good huh. movie. It's streaming on YouTube. You can watch it. Wow. It's got, you know, really good cinematography. But it's funny. It's, I mean, it's just like Deliverance. It was actually retitled to Survivance when it, they released it in France. Survivance. Survivance? That's, yeah. not a, that's not a word. Yeah. They just really ripped off Deliverance for that one, I think. They're just like, yeah, it sounds sort They're of like, like We don't care, it's France. Right. Speaking of Deliverance knockoffs, another bad movie Monday staple was Hunter's Blood from 1986. <laughs> Do you remember who it was starring? Yeah, it starred Frank Travolta or whatever is it? Joey Travolta. Travo- Joey Travolta. <laughs> John Travolta's brother. Right. Did you watch it? Yeah, I saw it a long time ago. Uh-huh. And then, of course, I watched it again when I put it on Bad Movie Monday. It's terrible. 
Yeah. And it has one good scene. Did you watch it? No, I didn't. There's only one good scene where one of the rednecks gets his head blown off like point blank with a shotgun. It's a good effect. Like it didn't show it get blown off, but it showed him on the ground and he's all twitchy and it's like the top of his head's gone. And it's actually, I think they spent all their budget on that one yeah, effect. Yeah, they're like, but it was a good one. So yeah. I'm like, hey, too bad the rest of this movie sucks. But there you go. There's one good shot right there. Yeah. Well, Joey Travolta. Yeah. There was also a movie called Blast Fighter in 1984, which had the kid from Deliverance. You know, that kid is actually, they said, very smart. Yeah. He just looks like he's inbred. Mm. Blast Fighter? Blast Fighter. Okay. Yeah. Redneck Zombies from 1987. There was mm. a movie Blood Games from 1990. The movies of the 80s were, I think, relatively forgettable when it came to exploitation. Yeah. But then, of course, there was Roadhouse from 1989. Oh, yeah. And with the success of that, there were a few directors that would take on some country themes and make some pretty interesting country-themed exploitation films, but kind of in different ways. Right. So John Waters' Crybaby from 1990 was a musical featuring Johnny Depp, Tracy Lords of Porn Fame, and Ricky Lake. Oh, Iggy Pop was in it, too. I forgot. I forgot about that. It was more of a white trailer trash family living in the backwoods outside of Baltimore. So like every movie that John Waters does. Right. This one was a little bit different because usually he kind of focuses on suburban themes. He was a suburban kid, so was right, Divine. Right, right. And this one was kind of like, you know, way out back. Yeah, it was like right after hair. It was kind of right after time frame Hairspray was. Okay. So. Yeah, yeah. But it's kind of a, you know, fish out of water narrative, you know, in, mm-hmm. in that movie Crybaby. The movie Gummo from 1997. <laughs> oh my was God. Completely different take on exploitation oh, from Harmony Kareen. I just watched it again for the for this episode. It's, it is it is something else. You don't you don't like it though. No, no, I I, I reevaluated Gummo. Okay. I, I, I thought I thought it was terrific. It is I don't know how to rate it except that I love it and I sort of kind of hate it but I mostly love it it's funny as shit it's like darkly funny Very. it's hilarious and there's just there's memorable scenes you know the the rough play there really isn't one it's just about backwoods kids and there's scenarios but there's no real narrative that goes right. through the whole no, thing no there really is but the kid eating spaghetti in the bathtub I think is really it's gross yeah and then there's also there's a, a guy who rents his sister out and they're every, everyone in the movie has special needs so it's trash movie yeah he rents his sister out to for kids to have sex with her but you really need to see it oh god i really enjoyed it damn you rabbit you smell like fucking piss you can kiss my ass i don't like rabbits coming to my fucking house i kill he looks like a queer rabbit rabbits are queels they always got a shit on themselves this shitty ass rabbit stinks i know he smells like pussy smell like a pussy Funny story, when I went to film school and I had this roommate who's not into film, she's still a very, very close friend. And I had rented Gummo and we had never seen it before. And I was like, oh, let's sit down and watch Gummo. And she was actually really good. She, you know, she was kind of a person that I showed a lot of movies that I love, like The Cook, The Thief, His Wife and Her Lover, um, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which she hated. And I showed her. Necromantic? Did you show her that? I didn't show her Necromantic. She wasn't that good a friend. Yeah. You definitely showed me that. And we watched Gummo and at the end of it she was like I hate you and I'm never speaking to you again and I was like really I enjoyed Gummo she brings it up I'd say twice a year now she's just like oh yeah we want to sit down and watch Gummo like hated it that's fair yeah. So Larry Clark of Kids Fame has been exploring his creepy underage porn themes for a while, but yeah. a lot in the country. So this movie Marfa Girl, which is about West Texas teenagers in the country, mm. watched it. And then Bully, which was the true story about some Everglades, Florida trash kids that murdered one of their friends. Wow. So he's somebody that's been kind of looking at these themes, but maybe making exploitation movies in a little bit different of a way. Uh, and then remember Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, and Tu Wong Fu. Thanks for everything, Julie Newmar. Both took city drag queens on a road trip, both because of cars breaking down and had them interacting with country folk in different ways. Right, right. So different ways of kind of exploiting hicks, not just as murderers and, you know, bootleggers. Boot, but there are some convi- bootleggers. Yeah. Yep. In, in some different ways. So that brings us up to the 2000s. Pretty much everything in the exploitation genre movie forward is horror slashers, and I'm going to skip a lot of them, but there are a couple notable ones. There was Jeepers Creepers from 2001 with Justin Long. Remember yeah, that? That was more of the environment than it was like the Hicks weren't really the aggressors. Correct. But it was definitely it was a that monster. Setting. Yeah, it was a monster movie. Really. Yeah, yeah, sure. 
the movie Wrong Turn from 2003 and it's five sequels. There are, there are six Wrong Turn movies. I enjoyed the first one. I didn't see any of the other ones. Yeah, I did too. Uh, it's a family of inbred, disfigured West Virginia cannibals that prey on detoured teenagers. Right. The fun, One of the interesting things about this though was, do you remember like right around the remake of Dawn of the Dead where all of a sudden like zombies and monsters stopped moving very slowly and started moving very quickly? The fast zombies genre that really i think started with 28 days later even though those weren't technically yeah. zombies but they were fast moving and after that movie came out everybody just started retconning zombies to be fast yeah for a while anyway well it was funny because these you know is typically when you tend to think of inbred backwoods southerners you think of them as being very slow and even in a movie like the texas chainsaw massacre like these fucking people were slow you know i mean she outran yep. him everywhere she went he was a fat old you know, redneck slob. Right. And this was, I think, the first time we actually saw inbred people being very fast. They were fast. It was kind of cool. Did cardio. Cardio, y'all. I do a lot of cardio. I run a lot. I got to keep up with my murdering. I'm winded. (laughs) Them teenagers are fast. (laughs) (laughs) Them city folk. Your soul cycle. Yep. House of a Thousand Corpses, also from 2003, was Rob Zombie's debut as a director. And here's a fun fact, was filmed in the same house as the best little whorehouse in Texas. That's awesome. Did you know that? Uh, No, I did not know that. I think I've had maybe two pieces of educational knowledge. I learned something. One was about Dolly Parton's boobs, and the other one was about a movie where Dolly Parton played a whore. There's a lot of learning going on today. He also made a sequel to the movie The Devil's Rejects in 2005. So he's got a lot of exploitation. Yeah, he's all exploitation. Yeah. I actually saw him in concert and he's a lot of fun. He's a lot of fun. There was also a remake of The Hills Have Eyes in 2006 and then the sequel in 2007. There was a huge list of exploitation slashers in the, you know, mostly straight to DVD, but yeah. I kind of skipped over them. The movie Wolf Creek from 2005. Yeah. Did you see this one? That's Aussie exploitation. Yeah, Australian, yeah. Australian slasher. Yeah. And then there's the movie Tucker and Dale versus Evil from 2010. I like that movie a lot. I never saw it. So do you know about it? You want no, tell me. So, okay, so it takes that whole, like, rednecks in the woods thing mm-hmm. and, and with the teenagers and flips it. It turns out that the two redneck guys are actually the good guys. They go out there to their summer cabin because uh-huh. they're going to, you know, renovate it and fix it up. Sure. And these teenagers come out, and they're, like, thinking that they're going to kill them, and then these kids start acting crazy. And then they start fucking with Tucker and Dale. So it's like, it's a reverse of that. They, it's oh, a misunderstanding. Like, it's a movie of misunderstandings where, like, they rescued this girl that got like, almost drowned swimming, and they have her, like, in the boat. Swamming? Swamming. <laughs> and they're all like, hi, we got your friend. You know, like, trying to help, but it, it looks menacing, so they all think they kidnapped got her. It, and got it's it, a comedy it. of errors kind of thing. These teenagers keep dying because of accidents, but mm-hmm. everyone thinks that they're That's Tucker funny. and Dale. So I, it's really, it's like, I think it's a cult favorite now, and yeah. I liked it a lot. I thought it was fun. It's worth checking that out. Yeah. yeah. Good the, movie. That pretty much brings us up to date the only thing that i did write kind of at the end was was winter's bone a exploitation movie uh, you know what i'm gonna say yes that was it had arcs, right yeah was, but they were some they were country folk yeah there's meth there's people country. there was they were meth folk yeah smoking meth a lot of meth you yeah you smoke meth yeah uh, whatever so that pretty much brings us up to date <laughs> pretty much pretty much pretty much so, what do you think that's good and uh, there's a couple things i can actually add to this mm-hmm. more stories about your uh plays you put on as a kid yeah we did a hills have i play when i was <laughs> in third grade i played the mutant yeah our i spent on your grave play it didn't go over very well <laughs> so there was a movie in 1981 that i think you missed but it's called southern comfort mm-hmm. and it was a deliverance ripoff for the most part but actually one of the better ones is this army reserve unit that were out training in the woods mm-hmm. and i think they ended up having to cross this river because they're doing like land navigation or out there doing maneuvers or whatever and they stole these like Cajuns canoes and were shooting at them with blanks to fuck with them. Mm-hmm. The Cajuns didn't like that very much. And they like sick their dogs on them and had traps for them. It, it was played out like a horror movie. It was more like a deliverance thriller. But, you know, you didn't you only saw the hicks and like shadows and stuff. So they, they filmed it more like a horror movie. It's a good, it's yeah. a good movie. Oh, and good. the army part of that with this reserve unit, you know, the army at the end of the 70s, post Vietnam and like in the 80s, there's a lot of discipline issues in the army. And, I, you know, and being a former army person, I can say that. But I think they did a pretty solid job of representing 
that low point yeah, in military sure. history. And of course, these guys were not equipped to deal with these Cajuns that were fucking with them. And so it became like a chase movie. It's good. Southern oh, Comfort. Southern Comfort from 81, yeah. you said? 81, yeah. So right. check, it out. check that one out. A documentary that came out, definitely exploitation, called The Dancing Outlaw. Mm-hmm. Jessica White. You know, did you ever see the documentary, The Wild Whites of West Virginia or something? I did see that, yeah. Okay, it was so, streaming on Netflix. So that documentary is like came out after this one. This one was a, a showcase on Jessica White, who he's nuts, but he was... I think he played fiddle or something, but he also was an Elvis impersonator. Uh huh. And so that this was definitely a exploitation like short film. It's funny. You're laughing at him. It's tragic as well. But anyway, there was a sequel called The Return of the Dancing Outlaw or Dancing Outlaw Two, mm-hmm. where Jesco, I guess he got so famous from being in this like little exploitation documentary that they were trying to get him on the Roseanne show. Oh, okay. And so he was on Roseanne in an episode as a cameo. Roseanne, they they were like dicks to him. Oh, really? And then he had like these tattoos. One was like a, a Nazi symbol, but this guy was an idiot. He was, I mean, I shouldn't say idiot. This guy was kind of slow and it wasn't even done right, but they made a big deal about it and they were like going to try to get him to remove it. And they were just, the way they treated him on the show, mm-hmm. they were just like, Tom Warner was a dick to him, is yeah. what I'm saying. I think and he's kind of a coke monster, but. You made you really feel sorry for him, which is weird because he was kind of a dick in the first one. And Well, yeah, I mean, I don't really feel bad for anybody that has a Nazi tattoo, but, but right. it also sounds like they wanted him on the show so that they could basically exploit him. But right. then once he got there, they were like, we need right. you to be the primetime version. The reason they of got the- him on there or wanted him on there, there was a thing they tried to change once they got him on there. Right, sure. That's all I got. And I was just curious about that stuff. And All right. Well, we're both driving down to old uh, We are country. going to Virginia, back to our home. to Virginia Outlet tomorrow. We're have a good so time. hope the car don't break down. Me neither. You know, I want to say something before we go, too. I know we're making fun of, of our accents and stuff and them things there. But I'm from Hicktown. I'm hick as fuck. Me too. I mean, I made a fucking play of smoking the band. <laughs> that's that's redneck as shit. I like cheap beer. I'm drinking Bud Light right now. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's flat. So what are you trying to say? Are you trying to say we're making fun of them, but we also, are, but it's okay for us to make fun know. of them because be we okay are for us, but, but we are kind okay. of. Okay. You kind of seem to say like, well, I just want to say something. And then you were like, I'm trash. I was like, oh, okay, great. Great moral to the story. <laughs> the end. That's kind of the moral to all of our stories, which is like, we're trash. Bye. <laughs> all right. Well, I hope you enjoyed our episode on Hexploitation. I loved it. Thank you, Slate, for... If I keep doing that, it's going to stick. You know that, right? Uh-huh. Yeah, I'm actually okay with that. Like, okay. I feel like it's fine. Even when I go home, I have a lot of cousins who have heavy Southern accents. Yeah. I've spent a long time trying to get rid of mine. And when I'm hanging around there, it's just i know you've seen it too it's really like i get it a little bit too when i go yeah, back it's like so. starts coming out there when i start talking oh, about yeah. talking about my truck yeah once you start talking about trucks that's when the accent comes out yeah talk about trucks talk about you know whatever trucks drinking. and corn yeah truck porn and drinking yeah all right well thanks everybody thanks y'all Have see you next week one. bye bye thanks for listening to slums of film history you can find us on the web at slumsoffilmhistory.com where you can find links to some of the movies we talked about today along with pictures videos and additional resources as well as sunday slum day our weekly recommendation for the best and sometimes worst films every sunday night if you want to keep up with us we're on facebook and twitter where we share out a lot of additional content and as always please fact check us and let us know if we left anything out we're not professionals just two friends that love gross movies Cousins, country cousins. Country cousins. Double feature with Slanty Tramp. Shanty Tramp. Whatever. Shanty Tramp. It's called Shanty Tramp. It's called Shanty Tramp. Um, I feel like that was lame. Let's try again. The whole just the whole thing.